I'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, as also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Lord also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive." And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that commanded him, so did he. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us. Grant us a measure of thy spirit to understand that it's all about Christ and salvation, for the gospel is contained herein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be covering this section of Scripture, and the title of the sermon is Christ, Our Ark. Christ, Our Ark. So with that 
seed planted in your hearts, hopefully, you will appreciate the things that you can see in here. For Christ, God is speaking about Christ in terms of what Noah is to do here. And we read that Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So you'll recall that Genesis chapter 4 closed out with increasing violence, and violence was increasing with impunity, which people were leveraging and rationalizing based on what did not happen to Cain. For the Lord had told Cain that no one would take vengeance upon him, no one would would requite him for the evil that he had done in murdering his brother Abel. And so Lamech says the same thing in terms of if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. So based on Cain's experience, people became more and more evil and engaged in more and more violence and ungodly activities. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 tells us, quote, and we see this in our day and age, certainly in San Francisco and places where they um, speak against the police and where they won't pursue crimes that are less than whether it's $700 or $750, I don't recall. But Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And we certainly see that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where the Lord says that the imagination and the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So that's the way it goes with men, and we see that happening in the book of Genesis here in Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis well, 4, 5, and 6. We see that Lamech has taken unto himself two wives. So polygamy is probably catching on in the world there. People are ignoring God's intent for marriage, that the twain shall be one flesh. A marriage is one man and one woman. They are ignoring that. And as we talked about last um, time we met, based on the names of the women, women appear to have become sex objects in the eye of men, and they are in the shadow of men. Women are being taken for the pleasure of man and for the adornment of man. It's about glorifying man and and him satiating the lusts of the flesh. They're not being taken for a complement to the intellect and character of a man. They are not man's respected partner. They are not equal in every way as a woman is in the eyes of God. They are not loved for who they are and their contribution and partnership with their husband with whom they are one flesh. And why women tolerate this, I don't appreciate. Obviously, it's rooted in sin. It's rooted in their pride that their flesh is attractive to other people and perhaps a low self-esteem rooted in the sin of failing to appreciate that they too are in the image of of God and should be thought of themselves as such. So sadly we note in the line of Cain from Genesis 4 and the line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5 that both of those lines end with a man named Lamech, which is suggestive of how the people represented by these two different lines begin to look and act like one uh, each other. Now recall from Genesis chapter 4 that that line in Genesis chapter 4 represented worldly unregenerated people. We saw that they did not bear sons and daughters. It doesn't tell us they did. We know they had children, but it doesn't say that. They're not a fruitful group of people, and indeed it is only the Christians that bear fruit unto God. In Genesis chapter 5, we see that they represented godly or Christian people because we noted that this line uh, begins to identify themselves with the Lord. We saw that in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 4. It says there, and uh, he called his name Enos, and 
then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So we have these two lines representing two different groups of people. But sadly, that as time goes on, they begin to merge in terms of the way they act and, and uh, behave themselves, as noted by the names of the last people in those lines. They have the same name. So we can appreciate that as the world goes on, the world and the church start to look and act a lot like each other. And we can certainly see that in our churches around here, um, that have rejected the clear teachings of the Bible. They have ordained women to be elders and deacons and pastors, and they have ordained homosexuals practicing, acknowledging homosexuals to fill those offices as well. In order to increase church attendance around here, we have noticed that they have adopted worldly ways and worldly means to bring people in the door. It's not about salvation. It's about bringing people in the door like you're running a business of some kind. And the Lord specifically says that. Don't do what the Gentiles do. You know, we're supposed to do what God tells us to do in terms of fostering and uh, engendering um, a relationship between man and God through the preaching of the gospel. Churches use worldly music and a worldly message, and they employ human psychology, endeavoring to meet people's felt needs of love and loneliness, and they address their anxieties and sense of rejection. And you can see this when you go to a church's website. Most frequently, the most frequent thing I see are pictures of people eating donuts, sitting around, and fellowshipping one with another. You rarely have the godly message set before you. They are rarely preaching Christ and Christ alone. You'll see a picture of a band with drums, guitar, these days behind a plexiglass window. But it's all worldly stuff. Um, I was watching one video of a church, and they, um, they were, we were watching people play bean toss. I guess they, maybe it's not godly to toss horseshoes, but they were playing bean toss or something like that. But nevertheless, it's about fellowship. It's about turning the church into a social club. So that's what they promote because that's how they want to bring people in. Um, and that's not what God says to do. So respecting the coming day of the Lord... The Bible tells us that it shall not come except there come a falling away first. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And there certainly was a falling away in Noah's day, and I would say that there's a falling away in our day today, that we are in that general time frame where the end is coming. I see a falling away of the church. There's a new, not a new church, there's a church just a little south of here, and I went on and read read their statement of beliefs recently, just to see if they changed. There is not anything in that statement of beliefs that I think anybody, including a Muslim, would find offensive. Clearly, they're endeavoring to appeal to everybody, and they found themselves a new pastor who will, just, who will do that very same thing. Another church around the corner here has repainted the building, and they have changed their name, acknowledging that they're endeavoring to draw more people into the church. It's not about preaching Christ. None of these churches will ever change their pulpit and preach Christ alone because that when you preach Christ alone, it has the opposite effect. It sends people away. If you preach that all men are depraved sinners and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will drive people out and guess what will remain? The true sheep of God. And that's not what they're interested in. But that's what Christ is interested in. That's who goes in the ark, are the sheep of God. So the church today looks very much like the world, just like things were, I think, right before the flood. 
In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see that the world's population has grown and that the, quote, sons of God, and I would just simply characterize those as Christians, they have eyes for the daughters of men. In other words, the Christian men are doing the same thing that the non-Christian men were doing. They are finding worldly women more attractive to them than what I would call the daughters of God or Christian women. They are not finding a woman, a soulmate, a um, person with whom they want to be one flesh with because of their intellect and their character and their nature, but rather they are finding them attractive physically, and so they are doing what the world is doing. So we should appreciate that by entering into marriages with these women, we can appreciate that the ways of godly men were corrupted by worldly women, which is why the Bible warns us against that very thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Lord says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Be not unequally yoked together. That applies to men. That applies to women. That applies most certainly in the union of marriage. And it applies in your business dealings. I would never open a business, go into partnership with a non-Christian. We're going to have two very different priorities. I, as a Christian, am going to desire to do what is right for everybody, certainly what's right for the customer. And the non-Christian will most likely have profit as their primary motive, what is good for me. So it is not going to work. It certainly is not a good idea in a marriage. Um, The other church I used to attend had lots of people in it, and there were lots of single people attending whose spouses did not come because the spouses were not believers. And so the Christian came, and you can appreciate how they were in two different camps. One spouse was in the kingdom of light, the other one in the kingdom of darkness. They had two different loves uh, in their life, and so that's going to make a union difficult. Bible tells us, again, not to engage in that kind of a union. In Deuteronomy, the Lord tells his people, as Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, he says, speaking of the people in the nations round about when he is uh, getting ready to bring Israel into the promised land, he says, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Don't make marriages with these people. Thy daughters thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. And here's the reason why. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. So a simple thing like a marrying an attractive woman turns your heart away from God. Then God comes in and brings judgment because he's a jealous God. He loves his people and will do whatever it takes to get their heart back because that's what's best for them. It is best for us that we keep our eyes on Christ and be focused on him. Now, King Solomon, said to be the wisest man that ever lived, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so the scripture tells us that those women turned his heart from God and he set up idols in the temple of God, the result of which was that God rent the kingdom from his son, split it into two, and it was a divided kingdom from the time of his son afterwards. It meant destruction, misery, chaos, and death to Israel because of what he had done, because he married the women and they took his heart from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communication 
corrupts good manners. So when the church brings the world into itself with this idea that it's going to fix things for them, the opposite happens. The church is conformed to the world, not the world conformed to the church. God says, don't do it. Don't be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, what we see in Genesis chapter 6, particularly in verses 3, 4, and 5, is we see a precipitous decline into depravity on a global scale where in verse 5 it says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, God seeing that, what does he do? Well, he chooses to limit the lifespan of man. If you add up the ages of the men and you divide by the number of men, you'll come up with about an average of 110 years old. That's about how long people were living before the flood. After the flood, when you'll notice that the ages of men are given, it ratchets down very quickly, and so it's 120 years post-flood. God says he's going to limit it to 120 years, which I want us to appreciate that given the nature and the proclivity of man to sin, this is an act of great mercy. Remember before I'd mentioned the fact that Adam was going to go half go out and work for a living? Um, that was an act of mercy because it's going to keep him and other sinners busy. And when you're busy, you're less likely to get into trouble. So if your lifespan goes from 900 years to 120 years, that's an act of great mercy because we have to appreciate that if you are not a Christian, if you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on you continuously. John 3:36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. They are condemned already. So, a shorter lifespan means less time to sin, which means less wrath of God poured out on you, meaning less eternal punishment. So, punishment is still eternal, it's just less severe. In Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says that he searches the heart, he tries the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So, you're going to live 900 years and sin for 900 years, God's going to give you more. You're going to have more evil fruit and therefore shall suffer more as a consequence of it. So it's it's an act of great mercy that God would limit the lifespan of man. So, in addition to lowering the lifespan of man, God chooses to start over uh, with man. Uh, But to be sure, we should appreciate that it grieves God to destroy man. As much as God hates sin and as angry as he is with man for his sin, it still grieves the Lord to righteously and justly destroy man. In Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord says this before us. He says, he's talking to Ezekiel, and he says, Say unto them, say unto Israel, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Why will ye die, people of San Mateo or San Carlos or Hayward? Why will ye die? Turn from your evil ways. Turn to the Lord and live. Now, if you are a parent and have had children, uh, undoubtedly you have punished them 
And you know that when you're punishing your children, you can simultaneously be um, righteously angry with the child and grieved with the child for the punishment they justly deserve. And that's what we see in Genesis um, chapter 6, verse 6 here, that it, the Lord is grieved in his heart, that man behaves the way that he does, and that the just recompense for that is their destruction. Um, so, here's a, a um, speculative question. How many people did God destroy in the flood? We have it in our head that it was a rather sparsely populated world, but the Lord gives us the lifespans of people here. And so if you did a calculation and made some assumptions that the average lifespan is 900 years and that the first child comes at age 50, and we know that in Genesis 5, it talks about them a little bit later, but if a person lives an average of 900 years, their first child comes at age 50, they have one child every five years, and they, have, uh, they bear children for 500 years. There would have been, or could have been, 4.9 billion people living on the earth at that time. 4.9 billion people. So don't think of this flood as a small thing, as though God destroyed. Yeah, there was just a few thousand people. You know, Cain was out building cities, and there could have been a very large number of people that were living. So this judgment that God brings is not a small, small thing. But that number is speculative based on a number of assumptions. So because things have deteriorated as they have on the earth, which of course is no surprise to God. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows why it's going to happen. And he indeed really ordains everything that happens, although I would never attribute sin to God. But nevertheless, it's all part of God's plan of salvation. And we've talked about that. God's going to start over with man, but there's going to be a difference in the way he does it this time in terms of the person he used. Now, after Adam sinned, we noted that he hid from God. God was walking in the cool of the garden, and Adam hid from him. So in a matter of speaking, Adam walked from or away from God. Here we see that though it is after the fall, the scripture tells us that Noah walked with God. The same is said of Enoch, who is seventh from Adam. In verse 24 of Genesis 5, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That happens to every Christian. <laughs> they walk with God, and God takes you unto himself and takes you to glory. He's going to do the same thing to Noah. But I want us to appreciate that the difference between Adam and Noah. Speaking of Noah, in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So here we learn three things about Noah, which are true of all believers. One, Noah was a just man, and that means that he was judicially right with God. And that is said of several people in the Scriptures, Old Testament people, it's said that, of Lot. Lot was just. It is said of um, a couple of fellows. I'm trying to think of the other. Oh, it's said of Joseph, uh, the um, adopted father of Jesus. And it's said of the man who was waiting in the temple for Mary to come and uh, Joseph to come. It said that he was a just man as well. So there are saints in the Old Testament. All the saints in the Old Testament were just people. So what it means is they were judicially right with God. And so we would ask ourselves, how is that possible that he was just with God. Well, verse 8 again tells us that Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. That is how he was justified. He was justified by grace. So in other words, Noah, like everyone who is of the elect of God, everyone who is called of God, everyone who believes in Christ, they do so because they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says that, For by grace are ye saved. In other words, you found grace in the eyes of the Lord. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Faith is not of you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we, the Christian, the saint, Old Testament, New Testament, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And this is certainly a good work that Noah's going to be involved in in building the ark. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, with respect to the people who lived before the cross, their faith was manifest in that they looked forward to Christ's work on the cross just as we look backward to the cross. In John chapter 8, verse 56, the Lord says, he's speaking to the, um, the Pharisees, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Noah looked forward to the accomplishment of what God had promised to Adam and Eve, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. So as Abraham did, as Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ, so did Noah, and so did all the Old Testament saints. They were rejoicing to see the day of Christ, and they saw it and were glad. Noah rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad, and we rejoice to see Christ's day looking back to the cross, and we are glad. The second thing we read about Noah is that he was perfect in his generations. Now, that does not mean that Noah did everything right, and nor did he ever sin. It means that as a vessel of honor, he was indwelled with the Holy Ghost, because that is what makes a man perfect and regenerates a man. By way of example, if a chipped vase contains water and flowers, it is being used according to its intended purpose. An empty vase, though it be without flaw, is just that. It is an empty vessel, and it is not perfect. It is not being used for its intended purpose. When it contains water and flowers, it would be said to be perfect. So every Christian is perfect in the eyes of the Lord because we are indwelled by the Holy Ghost. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are being um, um, used as God intended us to be used through the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost. So though we sin, we are nevertheless complete in Christ, and so we are perfect in that regard. And so this is what we read about Noah. Now, the third thing we read is that he walked with God. And as I said before, all Christians who walk by faith walk with God. When you walk by sight, you walk by yourself and do that which is right in your own eyes. And so the Bible is full of admonitions to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. And when we do so, we walk by faith and we walk with God. If we really appreciated God's omnipotence and his omniscience, and had even a small idea of how much he loves us, we would never walk by sight. But we don't, and so it's incumbent upon us to read our Bibles and ever keep these truths before us. 
So our narrative tells us here that God is going to start over, but this time he will start with a regenerated man. He's going to start with a Christian, one who knows both good and evil, one who started his life as a sinner, one who grew up with the effects of sin in him and all around him, and one who can see what God sees, that the earth is corrupt, for all flesh has corrupted his way upon the earth. He can see that the earth is filled with violence. He can see what you and I see every day since we were regenerated by God and every day since we were transformed by the renewing of our minds by God. In other words, we look through the world with a Christian lens, with a biblical worldview, and we can see that all the world is corrupt and steeped and in bondage to sin. Up to this point, Noah has seen God's grace and he knows God's love and mercy for he's seen it in his own life. What he's about to see is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That comes from Romans 1.18. You should be able to see that too. And when I have people ask me, how could a loving God you know, let such misery and mayhem um, be in the world? I quote Romans 1.18. I said, what you're seeing is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Noah's going to see that in a very real way. Because what Noah's about to do is he's going to condemn the earth by obeying God and spending a hundred years building an ark by which he is said, and through which he is said to be a preacher of righteousness. Why are you building the ark? Because God is going to bring judgment on the earth and destroy all sinners. He's preaching judgment, and he's preaching the righteousness of God. But before I go any further, I want to make a couple of comments, general comments about the flood. <clears throat> In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says that people are willfully ignorant, willfully ignorant of the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says in two places in the Bible, Jude 1.7 and 1 Peter 2.6, that God left Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of those that live in unrighteousness and ungodliness. He left them as an example. Everybody knows where Sodom and Gomorrah is. It's not a mystery. You can Google Earth it and see that it's in the bottom western corner of the Dead Sea. The people that live there know it's there, and they know why it's there, and they know why God destroyed it, because the Bible tells them why. Now, respecting the flood, God left lots of evidence for the flood. As a matter of fact, you'd have to be willfully ignorant if you didn't see it. 71% of the earth is covered by water. The volume of the water that covers the earth is calculated to be about 332.5 million cubic miles. There's a lot of water on this earth. I have no trouble believing that you could easily dump all of the earth into the water and that the earth would be completely covered by water, 100% by water, which is how the Bible tells us it started in Genesis chapter 1. Now, as we might expect, people have foolish of ideas about where all the water in the earth came from. Some scientists have postulated that the earth's oceans were formed when icy comets hit the planet. <laughs> um, however, <laughs> new research suggests a different origin for the oceans, that it simply seeped out of the center of the earth. What a novel idea. Geologists at Goethe University in Frankfurt have discovered that the transition zone between the earth's upper 
and lower mantle contains considerable amount of water. As a matter of fact, they think it contains six times as much water as is contained on the surface of the planet. If these people had read Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, they would have read that God flooded the earth when he broke up the fountains of the great deep in addition to opening the windows of heaven. So eventually, scientists figure out what simple truths God has given us in the Bible. But then again, God knows that the hearts of all men are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he tells us that they are willfully ignorant of the flood. They are willfully ignorant. They choose not to believe the word of God, nor all of the global physical evidence. And forget about that big fossilized boat that they found on the mountains of Arat. <laughs> Don't look over there. Um, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, I'll read those. It says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers. We have lots of scoffers today walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That is a false statement. All things have not continued the same as they have from creation. And he says in verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water. We read about that in Genesis um, chapter 1, that God had water and earth separate, one from another. Earth was standing out of water. Verse 6, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. All things have not been, as, been the same since the fathers fell asleep. He flooded the earth. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, that would be by Christ, are kept in store by him. All things consist. He's keeping the world spinning on its axis. He's keeping everything going just fine until he's ready to destroy it. All things, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He's keeping things going just as they are right now. That's not the way they always were. But just as he destroyed it once in the past, he's going to destroy it in the future. So man is willfully ignorant, though evidence of the global flood and catastrophic geographic upheaval is all around us. Man refuses to acknowledge the truth of God's word. And in particular, he refuses to acknowledge God's judgment. And that willful ignorance and willful rejection of the truth will fully bring upon men God's condemnation. Just as men ignored Noah's preaching, so too do they ignore the preaching of the gospel today. Noah was a hundred years building the ark, a hundred years preaching the righteousness of God, a hundred years of people thinking that he was a fool. And just as the cross was not done in the corner, Paul says that when he was talking to King Agrippa, there were a very large number. I don't recall the number. I've told you in the past. A million people in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can't miss what Noah was doing for a hundred years building an ark. Everybody had to know what he was doing. So you have a hundred years of people thinking he's a fool. A hundred years of people going about their business as though they might live forever. They're eating, drinking, getting married, raising families, giving their daughters in marriage, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came. But then it was too late because God had closed the door. 
For them the day of salvation had come and had gone. So here in Luke chapter 17, where I've just been quoting, and again in 2 Peter chapter 3, God sets a parallel before us between the days of Noah, the days of Lot in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast roundabout, and the day when he will come again. The Lord sets this parallel before us to teach us a couple of things. And one of these things is 1 Thessalonians 5.9. It says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not appointed his children, his people, his elect, his saints to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches us when he notes that the destruction did not come, the destruction could not come until Noah was in the ark or until Lot had been removed from Scotum and Gomorrah. And he says that to Lot, I can't destroy this until you leave. And so God is teaching us that. In like manner, the Lord is not going to destroy this earth until all the elect have repented and come into Christ. Till all the elect have repented and come into Christ. This comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to the world? No, he's long-suffering to us, word not willing that any should perish, meaning not willing that any of us should perish. This is written to Christians. He is long-suffering to the saints, to the elect. He is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. It's when the Christians all come into the ark that the flood came. Not one of God's elect will perish. Not one of God's elect will suffer the wrath of God. When the last person ordained unto salvation is brought into Christ, then will the Lord come in glory, and as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the clarity of this and the typology of this and that we would appreciate this is set before us in terms of God's instructions to Noah and how to build the ark. In verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6, in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says, Make thee an ark of gopher, foot, gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Well, if you want to build a boat, that's what you do. You put tar and pitch on the inside and on the outside so it would be um, waterproof. However, the word pitch there, the first time it's used, and thou shalt pitch it within, that word is translated in other places as make an atonement, make an atonement. And the second word pitch, that's translated as pitch, comes from the Hebrew word ransom, ransom. So you have make an atonement in terms of the construction of the ark and ransom in terms of the construction of the ark. So the ark is a representation of Christ. It speaks of atonement and ransom in its construction. We should appreciate that since the day of Adam's sin, God has set before man a substitutionary offering as the means by which he might be reconciled or at one with God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the language is there somewhat enigmatic, but it tells us that the ark is a figure or type of Christ in which eight souls were saved by or through water. We read that, that just as the eight souls were saved in the ark, so too are Christians saved in Christ by the process which is represented 
by baptism, by being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as articulated in Romans chapter 6. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, I'll pick it up midstream, it speaks about enigmatic things, but it talks about how, which were sometimes disobedience, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. In other words, Noah was preaching to all of these disobedient people while he was preparing the ark, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Verse 21, the like figure, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Christ Jesus. In other words, getting into the ark is like getting into Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, it says that, Know ye not that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, should, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So, God is setting this parallel here before us. He's teaching us through the flood, uh, the means and agency by which he's determined to sort of start over, um, that if you would be saved from the wrath of God, you must do as Noah did and get into the ark, which represents Christ. So, if you would be saved from the wrath of God, which is God's just recompense for the sin of man, just as Noah was in the ark when God destroyed all flesh, so too must we be in Christ when God pours out his wrath on the last day and he destroys the earth by fire. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There came a day when God closed the door to the ark and salvation was not possible anymore. There came a day when he rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and salvation was not possible anymore for those people there. So in a general context, if you die or if the Lord comes before you are in Christ, it is too late. The door is shut and his righteous judgment has come. So... To the saints, to the elect, to any man that is in Christ, you have everything to be thankful for, that God took you, that you found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and that he put you in the ark of Christ. Amen.